Hello and welcome to the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day and it's Wednesday the 13th of July. And it's hot. Let's have a sensible discussion. The climate crisis is just too important to argue about. We need a mature approach to this crucial issue. Today's guest, Mark Cortez, calls it Climaturity, which is the title of his new book. Here's what he told me. Mark, you're an engineer. You're MD of Sunstart, a company providing consultancy in solar and energy storage to industry, government and finance clients. You're an adjunct professor at California Polytechnic State University, and you're founder and CEO of Liquidate Water, a stealth water conservation startup. So I think it's fair to say that you've been involved in clean tech and climate issues and so on for more than a couple of decades. Mark, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. Now, you've written a book. If I can summarize it in a couple of sentences, what you're saying is that we have two groups. Those who say the climate crisis is a disaster and those who are more or less saying it's a hoax. But there are two groups shouting each other down. You say it's time for mature debate, hence climaturity. Is that fair? Yeah, that's that's true. I think, um, and and um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's it's regional. I'm sure it changes by the country where you're at. But I know here in the U.S., um, it's certainly uh, I'd say two groups that are are yelling. It's actually one group is yelling, and the other the other group is kind of going like this with their fingers in the air, right? So um, uh, there's not much debate. It's it's just sort mm-hmm. of uh, one group with the bullhorn. The other folks are are closing the curtains and saying there's not much to see here. You're like the Wizard of Oz, right? And most of us, I think, are somewhere in between. You know, I, I, I sold my first solar uh, module in 1999 on the northern tip of Africa, literally for, uh, for water pumping applications in remote farms on the, in, uh, in, you know, in remote applications. So, um, so I have been involved in all phases of the solar business, uh, renewables. Um, and so we've fought the good fight and we've made good, slow, incremental, incremental progress. Um, and so been, you know, really proud to be a part of that. Um, but what, what seems to have taken over the dialogue these days, or I say dialogue, it's mostly a monologue is, um, is just this idea, well, just the alarm, uh, on both sides, on one side where, where it's, it's just gotten so extreme that we have to, you know, that we're all going to die by Wednesday. And then the others are saying, no, we're we're good, we can go, we can do this forever. And most of us are kind of scratching our heads saying, well, wait a sec, um, there's some truths that, that lies somewhere in between and no one is really telling us, no one's really being transparent with the whole process and telling us what is really going on, what's, where, where some of the holes in the logic are, where some of the problems are, where some of the limitations of the solutions are. And so my frustration has been growing over a number of years in working in the industry, but also in teaching and working with young adults and even with my own kids where, you know, where, where the, the overall uh, message that our kids are receiving these days is that we're all going to die because of the climate. And I kept thinking, man, how did we, how did we fail our kids so miserably? If that's what they're taking out of this whole thing is just a sense of hopelessness, then boy, that's just a failure of, of, in you know, of policy, of communication, of strategy, of everything. And so I said, you know, we need, 
we need to start having this discussion just openly. Where what do we know? What do we not know? Where are the questions? And we and we need to be able to actually talk about this if we expect to have some sustainable progress. Because you know, here in the U.S., um, the world loves to watch this, but it's just a ping pong ball. And one one side it goes from extreme to extreme. <laughs> we elect someone that that is pro it, and then we make a little bit of progress, and then. In a couple of years, we elect someone that doesn't believe it, and then everything stops. And that's just, you know, that's our, our whole climate, uh, our climate discussion. So that's yeah. climate surety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, it, it's a global issue. But my first impression from reading the book was, as I read the first part, was that you were very skeptical about the whole idea. I mean, you talk about, uh, um, you question whether CO2 co- causes global warming or whether global warming causes CO2. You uh, dismiss the IPCC scenarios. You say they're guesses and they're political guesses anyway. You you deny that uh, the climate crisis is an ex, dis, ex, ex I'll say it again, but the word is existential crisis. Um, you do actually change towards the end of the book, but I mean, let's talk about these things that you've thrown out at the beginning. Yeah, sure. So, um, I well, let me let me just basically. I think. Climate change is real. The climate is always changing. I think man is having a uh, a, a ever increasing influence on on that. Certainly, CO two uh, unabated is not good. I think I, I would think that most people agree with that. And um, whether or not there is a causal link between CO two, this was a surprise for me. Okay, and someone coming from this industry, I actually dug into it quite a bit because I said I want to know. I want the smoking gun and the literally the smoking gun. And while I find lots of, of, of certainly there's tons of correlation between this, um, the, the, the science, the scientific link um, that shows uh, CO2 rising, causing temperatures, causing catastrophe, it starts to get uh, well, it's, it's in some question. And I, I cite a couple of, um, uh, studies that I that I had read that shows that there is actually still some open debate about that. But but let me just let me bottom line. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying that there isn't a link. I'm saying the the direct influence that that mankind's rising CO2 has over temperature is still is still being discussed and debated. I mean, I pulled uh, information directly off of. Uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmosphere Service here in the U.S., right from their website, it says, yeah. you know, causality between those two is exceedingly difficult to um, to prove. And so I'm just saying that, right? I think that yeah. it's yeah. true, right? It's a very difficult thing. But I'm but saying you, that you, even you still... Quoted, you uh, quoted two articles. You quoted two articles, and I followed them up um, uh, as you did. And what what it said was that warming, particularly in the Arctic, can cause um, turbulence in the seas, and that can uh, bring up water from lower depths, and that can release carbon dioxide, which the oceans in the past have absorbed. So therefore, yes, warming comes first, CO2 comes out. But the same article does not deny that the presence of CO2 causes warming. And therefore, they identify this as an additional risk to the uh, anthropogenic CO2. Yeah, I'm not saying so. I'm not saying I, I, I'm not going to use the word word deny, right? I'm just saying uh, if when you when you lay it out there, I'm saying the the in fact, and, and as you said, as I as we progress through the book, I'll say, look, 
if you know, if you look at the science, and then there's plenty of debate and discussion about the science. But let's take it. Let's take it as um, a given, right? Let's just get. Let's just get past it. Saying, you know, certainly, if if I step back and again, if I wear the climate surety hat, I say most logical people will say, you know, hey, our our the fumes from our cars and all that exhaust is not having any good effect on the planet, right? We are exerting some negative influence. Of course we are. There is no doubt about that. There's now 8 billion, 9 billion people in the planet. We are, if, if we just do everything unabated, um, it's, it's not making things better. It is making things worse. And the question of how, how much worse is it is of course the, the big question, um, but certainly we are having an effect. So let's take that as a given um, because, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to deny that, of course, and there are certainly scientists that will will spend, uh, have spent their careers trying to link that up. And I think most people logically believe that there is some, some link and that there is some influence that we are exerting on the climate, right? I think it, I mean, it makes logical sense. Yeah. Um, and well, so- you, you go so far as, as to make the very important point that it's not just a question of reducing the rate of emissions. Yes. If the CO2 in the atmosphere is causing warming, we've got to stop emissions and ideally go beyond that and start extracting carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which, of course, is going to be a hell of a technical challenge. But I mean, that's that's yes, I agree with you on that. That's a, a, a sensible point of view and very different from the sort of uh, person I, I thought you were when I read the first few chapters. Well, I um so my my issue with so I a lot of people will, I, I say that I have an issue with decarbonization and my issue is that it's it's built to guarantee that we won't get there and so um, I mean we could decarbonize tomorrow and we still have a CO two problem so so we're fighting the wrong fight in my opinion so we uh, one of the challenges one of the things that has happened in the climate discussion and because it has grown so apocalyptic. You know, when you start telling us the world that we're going to be dead by Wednesday and then a thousand Wednesdays go by and we're still here. Right. It's it's kind of the boy who cried wolf syndrome. At some point, we're just sort of like, all right, we're, we're still here. We're still we're still slugging. What's the real truth here? So but one of the challenges with that is, number one, people stop listening. But number two, people people uh, stop. They focus on we focus on the wrong things and the wrong potential solutions. So. What I think, what my problem with decarbonization is, um, you never get there. And so here's, I'm, I'll use a bad analogy, but hopefully it helps drive the point home. And I, I say this a little bit in the book. Um, imagine you, you are, you go to a doctor and he says uh, you're 200 pounds overweight, right? So you've got 200 pounds overweight is, is our CO2 uh, problem that we have. So we're, we're just too CO2 fat, right? And I've got a 20 donut a day habit. Um, so. <laughs> The doctor says, you got you to lose that 200 pounds. And you say, okay, doctor, here's my plan. My plan is I'm going to go from 20 donuts a day to five. And that's a 15 donut per day savings. If I do the math, 15 goes into 200 pounds. Voila, eight months later, I'm skinny. And the doctor goes, well, wait a sec. <laughs> You're still five donuts fatter. And that's to me, decarbonization math, right? So you're adding solar, we're adding windmill, we're adding all these new energy sources, but we're, it's not, we, we're not reducing CO2. We're just stopping. We're just, we're still five donuts fatter. And um, so we're going to spend so many trillions of dollars to try to decarbonize the, the world. 
And when we get there, we're going to go, oh, we actually didn't lower CO2. Okay. Okay. <laughs> we just but didn't if, get there. If we don't or if we can't decarbonize, what's the future? Well, but um, but I would argue that we can. Um, so look, like it or not, the best thing that happened in, to the climate in the past 50 years was COVID. Um, right. So you're saying really, it's being done the wrong way? I'm saying it's being done in the wrong way because ah. we're we're producing, we're, we are pursuing solutions that never get there. And so, uh, and this is, I mean, if you fast forward, let's, let's just assume we're completely successful with decarbonizing over the next 30 to 50 years, yeah. CO2 levels are still too high, right? So temperatures will have continued to rise for the next 50 years. All of these, these terrible things that, that everyone has projected, if they in fact come true, they'll still happen decarbonizing doesn't do any of that. It so when you're saying decarbonizing, you're saying net zero? Net zero. Yeah, yeah. So a, even a steady state, but we're still at the same unacceptable level of, uh, of CO2. Yeah, but it'll take us 50 years to get to steady state, right? I mean, so yeah. that unacceptable yeah. level will get 50 years worse. So um, so, um, so what what work? What has worked? Conservation. I hate to say it, um, you know, COVID, COVID mandated, you know, uh, quarantine in one year here in the U.S., and I'm sure this was true everywhere, but in one year, 2020, we cut our emissions by 11%, uh, 15% in uh, transportation in one year. So we're talking in months that we are successful in cutting our emissions, what 50 years of aggressive climate policy haven't been able to accomplish. And at a, at a, just a, a microscopic amount of the cost, right? So at a fraction of the cost. So, uh, but no one talks about that. There's an overall philosophy and decarbonization sort of feeds into that. The overall philosophy is we want to be able to change the world. We want to literally be able to spin the world backwards, but nobody wants to change their behavior. <laughs> right? So our answer to that is let's change the entire electricity and power grid. That's our answer at, you know, some ridiculous amount of cost. The last the last cost number I looked from McKinsey, just to decarbonize. That's just to that's just to stop it from going worse. Is two hundred seventy two trillion dollars, right? That's three times global GDP. So, you know, <laughs> that's just a phenomenal amount of money and time and effort. And I would argue a part of what I did in, in my book is I did some of the math. I'm like, I don't even know how you get there. I mean, there certainly isn't enough capacity. So. Uh, like solar capacity, windmill capacity, battery capacity. So we're going to carve up the earth for the next 50 years and just churn it up to try to save ourselves from ruining the earth. <laughs> so, uh, but conservation. So we, you know, we didn't, we did in a matter of one year, what we haven't been able to do in policy wise for 50 years. And so, so using less stuff actually works. Um, reforestation, uh, nature preservation, all of these natural means of doing it are way cheaper. And, you know, we can employ the natural carbon sinks uh, that the world has in order to start, start our carbon negative journey today. Yeah. Adaptation, like it or not, I know, I know it's the, the A word to a lot of the climate activists, but, you know, adapting to some of the, our changing environment are, are is a very real, um, a very real option for us. Yeah. But you said that, you said using less stuff. Now, isn't that incompatible with the, the capitalist model? Because, you know, every, every economics minister says, we need growth. 
um, we, and we're, they're, they're talking about infinite growth, which nobody's actually asked the question, how can we have infinite growth? But growth is the objective of every politician. And we only get growth if people buy things. And that uses scarce resources, that creates CO2 emissions from the energy and the transport and everything else. It's going to be it's, what we're talking about is a fundamentally different economic model. And that's got all sorts of political opposition, hasn't it? Yeah, well, that's um, so you sent me a link I, I, that talks about this Foursquare. Um, yeah, you know, the, this, this logic analysis, which is which is an interesting exercise. But I think that's the true thing. Right. Um, if you lay out the cost, this is the this is the discussion. Um, when I lay out the numbers, the cost numbers for what that McKinsey number that I showed you, 272 trillion. If you lay that out across the working developed nations, um, boy, that's a hefty price tag. When I, you know, as an American, when I laid that out and I, I did the math and I did some quick calculations, that comes to about $13,000 per working adult. Okay. So that's just to decarbonize. And that's, that's like starting now forever. Okay. So there's two adults in my house that, that work. That's a $26,000 bill per year for forever for an insurance policy for 30 to 50 years from now. So, I mean, these are real decisions that people have to make. Am I really going to not send my kid to college uh, for a year um, or every other year uh, because I'm going to pay into the climate reparations uh, insurance policy? Um, that's a very real, very, very real um, roadblock. And so, so you're right, right? I mean, economic uh, growth. So how do we do that? Um, my, you know, my take with this was we're still not completing the, the, full, the full truth. No, we're, no one is really doing the complete math. Everyone is sort of telling us their version of, the, of things. You know, um, uh, I come from the solar business and I constantly see articles that say solar is the cheapest electricity, you know, in the world. And I keep thinking to myself, man, have that discussion at midnight tonight when it's completely off. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's not the cheapest electricity, right? So everyone's got some spin on it. No one's telling us the complete truth. Um, you know, the, the anti-nuke crowd is saying, you know, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But when you look at it from a CO2 perspective, it's it's uh, the only thing better than, than, than nuclear in terms of a CO2 footprint is hydro. And so um, what I'm, so part of what I would like to advocate for in, in this book and, and just the discussion in, in general is let's lay out all these options are, let's use consistent metrics. Let's really be honest and transparent with what, you know, if you, if you, if we spend public money, what can we reasonably expect and tell us the truth. And I don't know, I don't know how you feel, but I know lots of people that, and I've, I, I've, you know, work with hundreds, if not thousands of people in this industry. I don't know anyone who feels like they're getting told the whole truth. Well, that's very so. interesting. Um, uh, I, I, I was interested to see in your book, you did a table of the relative costs of sequestering carbon by taking all sorts of different measures, starting with uh, uh, rejuvenating the peatlands, yeah. And going through all sorts of things, including renewables and nuclear power and everything else. Great list there. So that started to put things into perspective. And I'm sure that sort of detail is in all the IPCC reports. But few people read all the IPCC reports because they're thousands of very technical pages. Um, and yeah. that, that, when you're talking about the whole truth, you need 
scientific journalists, journalists or commentators who understand the science and can read it and can make it um, accessible to yes. people like me, who I'm, I've got no technical qualifications at all. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's what we need. It's a communication problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, that list that you mentioned is it's actually not my list. And that's the that's part of what I wanted to do was uh, Project Drawdown is a is a wonderful nonprofit yeah. that is tracking all these different potential solutions and they've put cost numbers to it. So there's not many folks that have done this that have said, here's a here's a whole list of potential options. Here's how much they would cost, we think. And here is the CO2 effect that each one of these will have. And so they put it out on their website. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic place to start. And um, so, um, so I said, well, let's, let's take that information, do it as a dollar per CO2 effect and then sort it. Right. So like if, if we only have a limited amount of money, which we do, um, which would we do tomorrow? And when I did that, it actually was a real eye opener for me. And, and I, th I found, I thought based on what you read in, in the press that, EVs are going to be at the top of the list. Solar energy is going to be at the top of the list. Windmills will be at the top of the list, right? And and nothing could be far, you know further from the truth. And that was real eye opener for me. Of the of the top thirty um, options, I think I pointed out the cheapest to affect CO two. There wasn't one energy option in there. <laughs> this is you know trees and peat and farming and natural solutions and uh basically hidden in there is hey maybe we should let nature do what nature does uh <laughs> and help help nature start to save uh save itself and get the heck out of the way and help optimize that and so it wasn't until i think item 33 that was the first solar one uh but then you if you look all the way through that list you know electric vehicles are at the very bottom of the list and in terms of you know, expense for CO2. So what that says is we're spending a heck of a lot of money and certainly most of the media time uh, on solutions that look like they will have almost zero effect. And there's tons of other things that we could do um, th that would actually be way more effective. And so I love that list. And I, you know, this is, that's what I want. I want people out there looking at this kind of scratching their head goes, you mean if I just use less stuff, I could actually have much more effect. Uh, one of the challenges we have with climate is, and, and this is a big one, is it always seems like the answer is so big, like people will say, well, we have to change the system, right? We have to change, we have, government has to lead. Well, that's, you know, the system is actually a million different tiny systems and they're all, they all have different mo motivations, economic systems, um, you know, energy systems all across the world. You know, if you go to Africa, they have a very different set of priorities than if you come here to the U.S. or Europe. Um, you know, there's a great case study. In fact, it was just in the Wall Street Journal today that showed um, a project that went into um, to Africa with solar modules as to, as a model for economic growth and. Yeah, it actually went the other way when they went in there and the, and the locals realized that, hey, the only, this stuff only works a third of the time. Give us, you know, energy that helped make you prosperous. Mm -hmm. And they abandoned the whole thing because they they found out that they actually needed 24-7 reliable energy to help them lift themselves systematically out of poverty. So um, so we, we keep looking elsewhere for, for solutions. And that's one of the challenges is that it makes it so uh, unattainable is if, if we require the entire world to change, um, boy, we're, we're just going to be stuck in the mud like we're at. 
So where do we go from here? I mean, that's that's the question I ask so many people. Where do we go from here? I, you know, I personally would just I, I want to have these sorts of discussions. It's been it's almost um, taboo to have open dialogue about the climate because it's such a hot button issue. So the list that you talked about, um, let's have that discussion. I would wouldn't you love to see that on a national stage, on an international stage, say, here's here's the number and let people start debating the numbers. You know, let us let us start to be real with the options that are available um, and let's not hide behind these general terms like things like we have to take global action. Well, I don't. No one knows what that means. <laughs> let's put a price tag to it. Are you willing? Are you personally willing to spend thirteen thousand bucks out of your pocket from here for the rest of your lives yeah. to to try to help mitigate this? Because um, I'm betting most people would say no to that. But you know, we may be willing to do five. We may be willing to do three. Um, but no one's talking like that. No one, no one has any idea what these numbers are. The politicians hide them from us. They won't even tell us um, because they know that once we see that, we'll look at them like they're crazy. Okay, you know. Um, so transparency, openness. I would love to see. You know, I mean, here here in the U.S. and this is my I'm going to wear a, my biased U.S. hat. You know, uh, during our last presidency, when we wanted to impeach a president over a phone call that he made with Ukraine, it was a global spectacle for weeks and weeks and weeks, right? When we wanted a message out there, we did it. But um, boy, I've never seen that with climate science. (laughs) For something that is just so important in such an existential crisis, I keep wondering, why don't we have climate scientists in front of Congress? Why don't we have them in front of Parliament? Why don't we have these people for a month laying out all of their computer models? Tell us why this science is, future-looking science is on the same uh, playing field with empirical model science that we can actually prove stuff. Explain to us the differences. Explain to us why they're equally valid. Explain to us why those future models that are never right, unfortunately. <laughs> Explain to us, though, why those are enough for us to be spending trillions on. And so I want, I would love transparency. I would love debate. I would love discussions. I believe, and I still believe this, and why I wrote this book is most of us want to do the right thing. Most of us believe it on some level. Most of us are willing to work towards, towards solutions as long as we understand what those are. And as long as we can really believe together what this, you know, the severity of these problems are. And so, so I think it starts like this, like exactly yeah. what we're doing, which is let's just have some ideas. What are the most cost effective solutions to help this situation? Um, and let's get everyone behind it. Let's not have it be one party versus another and, and, you know, uh, pointing fingers, you know, we truly do. If we're going to solve this, we need something sustainable amongst all of us that yeah. isn't going to break everyone. And so I think the only way we get there is to start marching towards the middle where we we acknowledge what we know, we acknowledge what we don't know, um, we acknowledge our own biases and then try to come up with something that we think that we can all live with. Yeah. Yes, I think we've got to continue to make the people aware because it's when people start saying, this is something which has to be done, then the politicians will have to follow. The politicians, I don't think, are going to lead. They're, no. they're going to do things which the people want. And if the people are not saying anything about climate change, then they won't They won't say anything about climate change either. Now, another thing, I was talking to somebody else on an interview a couple of weeks ago, and he said that the problem with the message at the moment is you say to people, look, if we do nothing, we're going to have a 
desperately bad future. And if we do something, it's going to be desperately difficult. So people have got, you know, it, it's lose-lose. Yeah. I think what we've got to look at much more closely is a, a middle way, doing things differently to achieve our objectives. They could be fundamentally differently and they'll be not be business as usual. And a lot of people will be very scared because we're going into the unknown. But it's not living in caves wearing sandals and, and uh, kaftans. Yeah. I think we could have a comfortable civilization, but we're going to have to think very, very hard about how we do things differently. So basically, we reduce our impact on this planet. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think you know, I'll take a, a, a page out of the playbook here in, in California, where we really... Um, we really were the first, you know, to to adopt solar as as a mainstream ener energy source. And now it's like any energy source; it has its good points and it has its bad points, right? So uh, I, I think I lay out in my book, you know, it's it's a solar is fantastic. It does what it does really, really well, cheaply, efficiently. It does what it does, but it doesn't do what it doesn't do. <laughs> okay. It's not going to save the planet. If, if you, if you spend all the money and, and, and solarize the entire world, then you go, Oh, but that only powers it a third of the day. Now, now what are we going to do you know, for the rest of the day? So um, my point with this was, you know, can you imagine? So, but when we wanted people to adopt solar here in the U S it wasn't rocket science. We paid them, right? We said, Hey, install these solar modules. Here's some money. So it wasn't, it wasn't terribly difficult. So I, I keep envisioning, you know, a, a policy where rather than politicians chasing jobs and chasing their base, imagine imagine a State of the Union address that said, you know what, we're, we're going to launch a national conservation program. I'm going to pay everyone to save electricity. OK, <laughs> I'm going to embrace the success that we had with COVID conservation. Uh, I can in one year, we're going to save 10 to 15 percent of our electricity. And here's how we're going to do it for every kilowatt hour you save and we're going to here's the whole program we're going to pay you so america it saves to pay right so imagine that no drama just imagine doing that and imagine turning all of our national parks into carbon sinks okay i have now every single national park is now going to be full of trees and we're going to re reforest all of these things and we're going to create all of these carbon sink pockets all across the the uh, uh the country uh, to do this imagine that and then we're going to uh, we're going to start highlighting uh, and prioritize, prioritizing adaptation uh, techniques and carbon removal techniques. Um, so I can just imagine that that is just drama free. And maybe I'm making it hard, but you know that encourages the behavior that we want. Do we think? I mean, is it even realistic to think that we can just consume unabated and still somehow uh, save the planet? Well, no, of course not. Uh, you know, something is going to have to change. And if we are to lead as the developing nations, then maybe using less stuff is, is a pretty good way to lead. So yeah. I can just imagine programs like that that wouldn't break the bank that um, that, uh, you know, we have we have uh, electricity saving programs here in the U.S. when uh, there's there's penalties for blackouts. We get alerts that say, hey, you know, turn your lights off for an hour and we'll give you 10 bucks or a pizza or something like that. Those kinds of things work. And so. Yeah. But it just never gets talked about. And um, yeah. so I think I can envision um, you know, I can envision programs like that that would have just very uh, more real and immediate effects than these 30 year uh, these th 30 year programs. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. 
before we close, it's one point I want to talk to you about, and you mentioned it at the beginning, I think, and that's eco-anxiety. The younger generation yeah. are feeling hopeless because they don't see a future. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think there will be a future for them. We have to do something to make it happen, but we do need to encourage them and we do need to prevent people becoming depressed because of what they see yeah. could be a bad future. Yeah, and that was that's actually really um, my motivation for doing this whole thing. So I'm a parent myself. I've got a teenager, a couple teenagers, and then I work uh, when I teach, you know, with these students. And we, we were always working on on entrepreneurial projects, and inevitably, climate is one of their hot buttons, right? So you've got 20, 22 year old adults entering the workforce, and they have grown up hearing just these never ending messages of climate doom. And so here they are stepping out into the world. And they literally will say, you know, what's the point? And, you know, I'm not going to have kids or my kids aren't going to have kids because the planet is going to be dead. And boy, I take this personally. I, I uh, you know, I was one of the solar industries. I helped build that industry. I, I was one of the solar industry's first true brand architects. So, and I took a lot of pride in that initial messaging and crafting that whole story. And I, I remember taking such pride in telling the truth and being transparent and saying, you know, we're actually doing good and I can prove it. I'm not over-promising. I'm not saying I'm saving the planet, but we're making things better. So how did that in 20 years, how did that change from we're doing good to, oh my gosh, you know, my grandkids are going to be dead. I, I just, it baffles me. And so that motivates me. You know, when I, when I ever, I hear that, I'm like, we're not going to kill ourselves. We are going <laughs> to, we're going to do th the only thing that's, that's deathly is the rhetoric. And, you know, yes, you know, we're, we're, there are certain areas, but I mean, if you go through and you look at uh, statistics and things like that, you know, humanity's health is progressively increased a, uh, a degree temperature rise over the 20th century has had huge benefits in terms of food production um, you know, all kinds of health uh, benefits along with that too. So there is a bigger story that's out there that is not nearly as apocalyptic as everything that we were hearing. And we actually are making some incremental progress. Um, but just walking around feeling hopeless and being scared, it leads to the opposite conclusion. Because what happens, like if you're on a diet and you're trying to lose 50 pounds, and you step on the scale and you haven't lost any weight. <laughs> What's that feeling, right? You stand, you'd sit there and you go, well, geez, I might as well go ahead and, and eat this entire pizza, right? So <laughs> we want hope. We want our kids full of hope. We can solve this. And, and there are real solutions. And, you know, we don't have to spin the earth backwards on its axis in order to affect real change. We don't need someone 10,000 miles away to enact some global policy to save us. We can actually do things ourselves. We can actually turn off lights and conserve and, you know, uh, maintain these trees and actually help make our local communities better to actually help this thing. And that's the message I would like to, to impart upon them. It's, it's not as hopeless as we are being told. We actually do have a lot of levers to pull. And if we can be open and transparent about how we're going to do this, we can actually band together and do this. Mark, that's a, a great positive note to end on. Thank you very much. That's been a really fascinating discussion. So thank you for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report. Thank you very much for having me. I hope it was, uh, it was interesting for me and I hope it was for, for you and your, uh, your listeners as well. Thank you. Thank you, Mark Cortez. And that book is called Climaturity. Details on the climaturity.com website. Much to think about and much to act upon. As Mark says, we don't need someone 10,000 miles away to enact some global policy to save us. 
We can actually do things ourselves. We can actually turn off lights and conserve and maintain these trees and actually help make our local communities better. We do need our governments to take action though. Some actions are just too big for individuals. Governments govern in our interests so they must be urged to do the best for all of us. Doesn't that sound naive? As most listeners will know, there is an election in process for a new Prime Minister in the UK. The worrying thing is that none of the 11 candidates seems to be mentioning the climate crisis, except for one or two who seem to be promising the right wing of the party that they will scale down or abandon our net zero 2050 targets. It is only the party, of course, that chooses the Prime Minister. Nothing to do with the electorate. Long live democracy. Well, that's it until Friday. The next edition of the Sustainable Futures Report will indeed be on Friday. Plenty of news, plenty to think about, plenty to do. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Wednesday interview from the Sustainable Futures Report. Until next time. <laughs>